Well, we are back to Revelation, and uh, this is our sixth week. Whew. That's a lot. We have two more weeks to go. We'll get through the rest of, of Revelation. I, I hope that you have been enjoying this as as I have been. Um, you know, for um, centuries, uh, probably uh, a little while after the first church and pretty close to Jesus, but for a long time anyway, in the Christian community, there have been arguments and discussions and conversations about the importance of the Old Testament. And maybe you've even asked the question uh, uh, yourself, why, why do we even have the Old Testament in the Bible? Why is it there? Why is it important that I that I read it? I thought we were about Jesus and knowing about Jesus and looking like Jesus. And so um, I get New Testament stuff and why I should read that. But why do we have the the Old Testament? If we don't live under those rules and regulations anymore, why do we spend any time in it? Why does the preacher want me to read the Old Testament? Why do we have messages that go over passages in the Old Testament? If we... If we live under King Jesus and not under the rules and regulations of the Jewish uh, uh, covenant, why do we need to read it? Well, reading Revelation and going through this series has convinced me um, more than ever before in my life that we can't fully understand what Jesus was accomplishing in the New Testament unless we understand what people failed to accomplish in the Old Testament. Uh, do, do you watch any shows, do you stream any shows where uh, at the beginning of the new episode, there's a recap of what's happened in the past? Do you watch any shows like that? Have that re- so we, oh, we we watch a few shows, like most <laughs> normal couples, I think, today. We, we have a few shows that we that we watch and we sit down at night, we're doing other things or whatever, right before we go to bed, there's a couple um, shows that we watch. And, and a few of those have those recaps where they just take a several minutes and go over what happened in previous episodes and maybe even several episodes before that to kind of catch you up with what's um, going on in what you're about to see. And, and I feel like that same kind of thing is happening with the book of Revelation. And and really, anything that you read in the New Testament, if you don't understand the Old Testament recap, if, if, you don't, if you don't have any knowledge about the stories and the things that were going on in the Old Testament, it becomes very difficult to understand and apply what's happening in the New Testament to your life and do it correctly. And so understanding the Old Testament, having some kind of general knowledge about what's going on in the Old Testament of the things that happen really sets you up to best understand what Jesus is doing in the New Testament. And so when we try to read Revelation without uh, having seen the previous episodes, so we haven't read any of the Old Testament, we don't know what Revelation is is talking about. If we haven't looked at those stories and the prophecies and the commands and the themes of the Old Testament, then we can't fully understand what's happening in the book of Revelation. And so trying to, trying to read Revelation without knowing history and prophecy, well, you're just not going to come to a correct interpretation. 
So if you don't know what's going on in the Old Testament, if you aren't able to kind of draw some lines from the Old Testament things that were happening to Revelation, then it becomes really difficult to understand, to apply, to interpret what John is writing in Revelation. Remember, because he's writing in a way that's intentionally not easy to understand because he's trying to keep what he's saying from uh, the Romans. And so uh, this is why we started the series in in the book of Genesis. We started talking about in the beginning and the way it was and how in Revelation we're getting back to the way it was in the beginning where heaven and humanity are in unity with one another. And so that's why in this series we keep going back to Old Testament prophecy, we keep going back to Old Testament situations and themes and circumstances it is because God is a relational God. He, he wants to have a relationship with you and with I and, and, and with, with me. And so I, I think what's going on is that in order to best understand revelation, we have to see it through the lens of relationship. And that relationship started with the Jewish people and, and it extended to all of humanity throughout history. And so if we don't understand those things, it begins, gets difficult to fully process and understand what's happening uh, in the book of Revelation. So today, uh, we're going to look at John's last series of seven. So remember, I guess it was three weeks ago now, um, we looked at the seven seals uh, that the slain lamb was able to open from the scroll. And then we looked at the seven trumpets that came out of the seventh scroll. And then two weeks ago, um, we looked at, uh, John kind of took an aside, he kind of stepped back from the series of sevens, and he talked about what was found in the scroll of the Lamb. So we talked about some of those signs and symbols. Today we're going to get to John's last series of seven in, in the book. So it's the third series of seven. It's the wrap up and we're going to see uh, what happens in these um, uh, as, as God releases these uh, bowls of wrath. They're called God's wrath. But I want you to remember that God's wrath in the Bible is God's justice. A lot of times we, we read that the wrath of God was poured out on Onto people, and and we think about God and the Bible in human ways, right? We we assign the same kind of feelings and ideas and thoughts that we have to God, and and that gets really sketchy because God, we are not God. We don't think like Him. We don't act like Him. We don't talk like Him, and and so that sometimes becomes um, becomes difficult. And so when we read these words, God's wrath, we picture God as this angry parent who just discovered that his child was doing something he didn't want him to do and and he, and he lashes out in anger right that's what i think of when i think of god's wrath i think god's like he's boiled over right the pot has boiled over god's so angry he's so mad that his wrath is spilling out and he's just kind of scorched earth everything like we think about Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, the the um, uh, the fire that rains down from the sky and destroys that whole plain. We think about that in terms of God's wrath. But when the Bible talks about God's wrath, what they're really saying is God's justice. That this is God's justice that's being being poured out. 
And, and here's the, the problem. I might be getting ahead of myself, but here's the challenge for us. Um, when we're doing something that we shouldn't do, that we know uh, is wrong, that we know we're going to get in trouble for, when we do get in trouble, who, who do we blame? Do we blame the person that's punishing us or do we blame ourselves? We blame the person that's punishing like, Darn you. I, so many times we apologize for something and what we're really doing is we're apologizing for the fact that we got caught and not that we actually did the thing. Because that's how we function, right? And so we, we look at God's, God's wrath as though he's pouring, but really it's just God going, hey, look, I, to, I told you what was going to happen. I, I, I set the rules. I set things in motion. I told you what to expect and you broke the rules and here's what you get. And so sometimes we look at God, I think people look at God, they look at um, Adam and Eve in the Old Testament, they, Genesis, they get kicked out of the garden, they go, God is so, what, what's going on with God? He's such an angry, uh, vengeful God that he'd kick them out of the garden. I, I'm like, what parent wouldn't do that? If you set the rule and the rule is broken, then you have to follow through. Remember my two main parenting, grandparenting rules? Uh, consistency and follow through. So if you say, if you do that one more time, I'm going to rip your arm off and beat you with it. You had better do that. Because if you don't, what you've just conveyed to your child or grandchild or grandchild or whatever is that you cannot be trusted. Right? If you say, I'm going to do this and then you don't do it, you just have made yourself out to be a, a liar. And so God is consistent. He says, this is what's going to happen. Here are the rules. If you break the rules, this is the consequence. This is the result. We see that as God's wrath, but in actuality, it's just God being just. This is what is going to happen, and this is what to expect, and this is what's happening now. So um, these seven bowls of God's justice, which the people don't see that as justice, they're going to get poured out on people and on the planet. So go back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin, and what happens? The people are cursed and the planet is cursed. And, and so here we're going to see these bowls poured out and they're going to affect people and they're going to affect the planet. And so in chapter 15 and 16, where we're going to be today, John gets back to his series of sevens. And some of what is in chapters 15 and 16 is going to be familiar to previous chapters in the series of sevens that we've looked at already, the seals and the trumpets. But there's also going to be something um, significantly different in this uh, in this explanation of the series of sevens that wasn't in the previous series. So let's jump in. Revelation 15, uh, 1 through the first part of 3. Uh, again, John is talking here. He says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, that's important to remember, uh, for with them the wrath of God or the justice of God is finished. So John is saying this series of seven, this is it. This is the last, it's all over at this point. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fuck fire, excuse me. That's a weird thing. Again, we talk about some of that Picasso painting that John is doing in the book of Revelation. It's a sea of glass, but it looks like fire. And those 
who had conquered the beast, so they won the victory over the beast and its image and the number of its name. So remember the the beasts are representative of military power and economic uh, might, the propaganda machine of uh, politics. Uh, and then the, the number represented Caesar or any nation that would supplant God and, and, and say that they were the, uh, the primary ruler or God themselves. So he sees all of these uh, people who had conquered the beast in its image and they're standing beside the sea of glass. They have harps of God in their hands and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the of the lamb. Now, um, let me just say, there are a lot of people, uh, there's, there's a joke in the, in the world. And I think among Christians, uh, about hell being a fun place where you can drink and smoke and hang out with your buddies. That's what hell is, is going to be like. And on the flip side of that, we think that heaven is, um, we're going to be separated into big choirs. Uh, what's your part, you know, alto, soprano, base uh and then you're going to be given a harp and a and an old school uh hymn book and and we just stand around singing uh all five or six verses of every hymn uh in the hymn book uh for the rest of eternity uh and some of the places we get that are verses like this (laughs) all these people who conquered the beast are standing by the sea of glass they have harps and they're playing harps and they're singing these songs we go oh that's great let me just tell you if that's what heaven is uh, that doesn't sound very exciting to me. Uh, now, I enjoy singing. I like the whole family sings. We enjoy singing. We enjoy doing that kind of thing. Uh, eternity would be a really long time, I would think, to just stand around and sing uh, from a, a hymn book. Um, so uh, some interesting things happening right off the bat in, in, um, in chapter uh, 15. Something is different in this series of seven than in the previous. And it's the fact that what we, John sees is that those people who conquered the beast are separated from everybody else. Those people who conquered the, the beast, he saw them by this glass of the, the sea of glass. So, so he sees all of these people in a different place. Okay, that's important to um, remember. The followers of Jesus appear to be separated from the rest of the, the world. But before we go to that, let's jump to the end of chapter 15. Chapter 15 is a really short uh, chapter, by the way. Uh, so the song of Moses and the Lamb is sung. And then John says, after this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. So he's talking about uh, the the temple, the tabernacle. That's what he's talking about. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels, angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath or the justice of God who lives forever and ever. And then the sanctuary, the, the, the temple, this place where God was, it was filled with smoke from the glory of God, from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, several um, things are happening in chapter 15 that I think are really easy to miss, and so I want to make sure we get them pointed out. First, John tells us that this is the last 
of the plagues or God's justice. That with this, he's like, with this story, it's over. Okay, this is the end. This is the last time. Because God's wrath or justice will be complete after this. Meaning that this is going to be God's final act of separating evil from everything else. So when God brings heaven and, and humanity into unity... What he's going to do is push evil out of that existence. It's going to be separated from us. That's never really happened before unless you go back to the garden um, and there was the chance for evil there. Um, so this is God's final act. He's going to separate everything. Second, we're told that there are victorious people who did not follow the beast, who did not worship him uh, in thought or in action. So they didn't have anything in their forehead or their hand. And, and like, we're like, this is great news. There are people who were victorious, who didn't give in, who didn't capitulate, who didn't, uh, deny Jesus when, even when faced with death. And so that's really cool. And so in this series of seven, those who are victorious over the beast, they seem to be separated from everybody else, kind of watching the bowls of judgment be poured out, um, kind of from a safe space. They're by this sea of glass. Um, like, like they don't have to go through what everybody else is going through. That seems to be what John is kind of saying here. But there's a reason for this. And in order to understand the reason, you have to go back to the Old Testament. You gotta look at what's going on in the Old Testament. Because what John is saying in chapter 15 is gonna remind his readers of the Egyptian plagues that affected Pharaoh and Egypt and the whole nation. Um, but they didn't affect Israel, right? The, the first couple plagues was like the whole land, Egypt and Goshen where Israel lived. And there was kind of dividing line there. But after, I think it's the second or third plague, God makes a distinction between Israel or the land of Goshen and the rest of Egypt. And so even when we get to the plague of darkness, the sun goes dark. There's complete darkness in the land of Egypt, but it's light in Goshen. I don't know how he, he did it, but he did it. Why did he do that? Because God wanted it to be abundantly clear to all of Egypt and all of Israel that Israel's God was the one who was doing this. Israel's God was the one who was punishing Egypt and blessing Israel at the same time. And, and why would you do that if you're God? So that the, that the people who are being punished would recognize Oh, the God of Israel, he's the one doing this. Maybe we should turn and worship him. Maybe we should quit doing what we're doing, following the gods we're following. Maybe we should follow the God of the Hebrew people. Um, and so John's readers would have immediately thought of the plagues of Egypt, the separation between Israel and, and Egypt in that moment, how God was making this clear distinction with, between them so that there was no doubt it was God who was acting in this moment. Um, they also held the harps and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and the Lamb, it said. And again, the mind of John's readers, they're going to go back to the Exodus story. And, and when Israel comes to the edge of the Gulf of Aqaba and Egypt is bearing down on them, uh, Moses uh, lifts his uh, staff, the waters part, and, and Israel walks through the Gulf of Aqaba on dry land and gets to the other side, which is like Turkey or something. Egypt comes 
They see what's going on. They've been through 10 plagues, right? They've watched God do all of these things, progressively getting worse in the plagues, ending with the death of the firstborn male child of every family and every household. At this point, the people should be like, maybe we shouldn't mess with the God of Israel. Like you would think that would like, I would have got that probably on the second or third, uh, maybe not the fourth or fifth plague. Surely I would have gone like, okay, wait a minute. Maybe there's something to this. Instead, Egypt's army follows Israel into the sea there and God lets the waters come down and, and he finally just like, you're, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. And so I'm going to give to you what you're giving to me. And, and so the water comes down and, and, and they drown, he drowns them. And what happens? Israel realizes Egypt's army is decimated. The water has gone back to normal, which means if anybody from Egypt wanted to come after Israel, they had to go clear around the Gulf of Aqaba, would put them months and months behind, and nobody would do that. Israel sang because they recognized they were absolutely free. They didn't have to worry about Egypt anymore. And they sang this song. And so John's readers coming into Revelation 15, they would have remembered the story of the Exodus. They would have remembered the song of Moses. And they would have understood that what John is saying is at this point, people who are followers of Jesus, there's no reason for them to fear anymore. There's no evil. There's no boogeyman. There's nobody coming after you anymore. And so you can finally be free. So that's what John is trying to help people um, understand. Third, John talks about the temple of God. And the temple of God represented God's presence with his people, particularly in the ark. But the ark resided in the tabernacle and the holy of holies. And then in the back room, the holy of holies in the temple that Solomon um, built. And so there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into this. In, in verse 8, though... John says that this sanctuary, the temple, was filled with smoke from the glory of God so that nobody could enter the temple. Once again, a Jewish reader is going to read chapter 15 and they're going to go right back to the Old Testament. They're going to remember when God gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, then when he gave David and Solomon the instructions for the temple. And when each of those structures was built, there was a dedication ceremony. And at the end of that dedication ceremony, God's presence in the form of thick cloud, darkness, lightning, thunder, kind of scary stuff, honestly, filled the temple, filled the tabernacle so that nobody could enter either of those structures. It's exactly the same language used when God comes down on Mount Sinai to give Moses the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the nation of Israel and all the Egyptians that came with them heard the voice of God. There's a really interesting story. In fact, the very first time, the way God wanted to communicate with his people from the mountain, he said, bring everybody, consecrate them and bring everybody to the foot of the mountain and then I will speak to them. And so God first speaks to all of Israel, not just Moses, but all of Israel, all of the Egyptians that had followed them out of Egypt, recognizing and repenting, recognizing God as the one true God. They follow him out. God begins to speak to them. After the first day, they're like, we can't hear the voice of God anymore. If we hear it, we'll die. Moses, you go up the mountain and talk to God. 
And so when God's presence is present in the world, this is a recurring sight. When God's presence interacts with our physical world, it shows up in thick blackness, a thick darkness, smoke, lightning, thunder. It, it's a, it's a spectacle. It's, it's scary when you're there. Uh, because the holiness of God's presence is so encompassing. Again, same thing that happened on Mount Sinai, at the tabernacle, at the temple, Ezekiel's vision at the Kibar Canal where he sees the throne of God. It's, it's encircled by the same kind of thing. And so this is this recurring theme in scripture. Um, it also happened at the seventh bowl or the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet. And it'll happen again at the seventh bowl in, in chapter 16. There's God's presence. There's thick blackness. There's lightning. There's thunder. It's this whole big, this whole big thing. So chapter 15 is a short chapter, but holds a lot of information for us to understand what's going on in Revelation. Now, the people of Jesus are being hunted and killed because of their faith. And God, or John has been telling the people all throughout the first 14 uh, chapters, look, hang on, God is stronger, he's more powerful, he's able to protect you, he's able to save you if you remain faithful to him. But in chapter 15, he's kind of like saying, hey, you did it, <laughs> you won, you conquered the beast and the image and you didn't do the thing. Things that, that other people did. And so you're protected and you're with God now. You remained faithful. You're in his presence. He's with you. And you can sing this song of peace and, and joy just like the Israelites did after they crossed the, the river because you're free now. That oppression that you experienced is, is gone. It's lifted and you're free. To make the connection with Israel and Egypt even stronger, the bowls that are pulled out are representative of the plagues that were unleashed against Egypt. Now, there are two reasons that John is trying to uh, tie the Egyptian plagues to the seven bowls. There's two reasons. The first one is God brought the plagues against Egypt as justice for the way they treated Israel. So for 200 some years, Egypt had been enslaving the Israelite people. And right before Moses shows up, what, what do we find out is happening? The, the Pharaoh had told the Israelite people to murder their own children. Once they're born, you throw them in the, the Nile, you, you give them, a, you, you kill all the male children. Um, there, there are words for that kind of thing, right? And so what happened is that the Egyptians convinced, Pharaoh convinced the Egyptians that the Israelites were less than human people. They, they didn't, they weren't as smart as we are. They don't look like us. They don't uh, talk like us. They don't do things like us. And so they are lesser humans. And so we can kill them and, and it's not any big deal. That's what's going on. That they're, they're, uh, stealing the humanity from Israel. And, and so, um, God brings these plagues as justice against Egypt for what they've been doing. And it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. Now, at any point had Egypt gone, okay, uh, Moses, look, we recognize your God is God. We're sorry. We repent. We're not going to do this anymore. We're going to let you go. We're going to let you be people. We're going to recognize your humanity. At any point had that happened, the plagues would have stopped. 
God would have reached out to Egypt. There, there would have just been a completely different result. God wanted them to recognize their place under his rule and reign and recognize the evilness of their behavior. And so um, here's what happens. Two things that need to happen. We're just going to bust these out really quick, Julie, so give me the next two. Uh, their ego, first of all. The Egyptians believed they were gods. In fact, Pharaoh believed he was a god himself, and, and he's not. And so they needed to, to recognize that their ego was keeping them from uh, having a relationship with God. The next thing is uh, the way that they treated others. And so this is the same stuff that we struggle with today. What, what keeps us from recognizing that God is God? Well, my ego, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, why I want to do it for the reasons I want to do it. I don't want anybody to tell me what I need to do. Well, that makes you the king of your life and not Jesus. And, and so our ego gets in the way of, of our faith. And, and the second thing is that, that we treat other people um, in a way that we don't want to be treated ourselves. And, and we can do that. And so um, especially the Egyptians denying the humanity of the, of the Israelites, God wanted the people of Egypt to recognize their place under his rule and reign and come to follow him as well. Uh, and so these things needed to happen. Now, the second um, reason John is connecting Egyptian plagues to the seven bulls is because this. The plagues got progressively worse because Egypt was being stubborn. So again, had Egypt said, we're not going to do this anymore, forgive us, please, we're sorry. Uh, had they turned their allegiance to God, all of those plagues would, would have stopped and everything would have been different. And so John wants his readers in, in Revelation to draw a line from the story of Egypt and the Exodus and the oppression of the people of Israel to what he's talking about in Revelation. And he's saying, look, the same way that God delivered Israel from the oppressive uh, Egyptian regime, military and, and political power, God can save you from whatever political power you that there is now that the way God saved you from Egypt is the way God saves you from Rome and from every other nation that refuses to to recognize Him, um, and so the the the, the bowls begin to get poured out um, in in chapter sixteen, and the first bowl uh, affects um, the people. So the people who had accepted the, the beast, they were following him. Uh, they were following this political might and power and economic prosperity. They had rejected Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, they had sores on them. The second and third bowls affected uh, the water. Uh, and again, we see if you read 16, the first bit of 16 there, we see God simply giving back to the people what they gave him. So there's an interaction between an angel and the throne of God where the angel says, God, you're just in turning the waters to blood because these people have killed your prophets. They've killed your, your they've, they've slaughtered people. They've, they've shed innocent blood. And so you've given them blood to, to drink. And so once again, we're pointed to God's justice in that. He's not, he's not reacting to them in anger and, and, and wrath and malice and vengeance. He's simply acting towards them in justice. You did these things. You deserve this. This is the way it goes. Um, and, and so we have those uh, second and third bowls uh, poured out. But something different happens with the fourth and the fifth bowls. And we're going to look at that. The fourth angel pulled out his, poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people 
with fire. And that's interesting because um, they worshiped the sun as, as a god. And so now their god was reacting to them. They were scorched by the fierce heat, but what did they do? They didn't curse the sun. They cursed God. Again, the difference between wrath and, and justice. They thought God was just being a bully, and he was like, no, I told you this was going to happen. This is just the justice. You sow, you, you reap what you sow. Um, they did not repent. This is key, end of verse 9. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, so this uh, military, this kingdom, might, and power. And that kingdom was plunged into darkness. So so uh, the kingdom of the beast is defeated. And when it was defeated, it says people nod their tongues in anguish. They cursed the God of heaven for their pain and, they, and their sores. They did not repent of their uh, deeds. So at the fourth and the fifth bowls, the people still refused to repent. But it's what they refuse to repent from that I think is so um, uh, interesting here. With a fourth bowl, the sun, again, something they worshiped, um, was punishing them, was scorching them, and so they cursed God. This is exactly what Pharaoh did in the Exodus. A plague comes, and Pharaoh goes, oh, and then he curses God. He's angry at God for sending that plague. And so the people did not repent, it says, and give glory to God, meaning uh, the first thing here, they refused, they refused to turn from worshiping the created instead of the creator. So they were worshiping the sun and worshiping other idols, other things that they'd created, and they refused to repent from that. Um, this is called humility, when we recognize who we are and who God is, and that we are not God. We're not in control of our, of our own lives. There's a higher power, power at work. With the fifth bowl, the throne of the beast is attacked. Its power and position is taken away, and, and this is the end. Remember, John told us at the beginning of 15, this is the last of the plagues. It's over now. And so uh, the beast is gone. The kingdom is gone. It's in disarray. They, people don't know what to do. And still they refused to turn from doing what they want instead of what God wants. And so this is the second uh, reason. Um, people refused to repent from the things they were doing. So in the, in the first one, they don't recognize God as God and then worship him. In the second one, they don't recognize that the things they are doing or have done are sin or wrong. And so they don't stop, they don't turn from those things and do what God wants. Um, now it's the same, uh, it's the same for us. It's the same thing that happened with Egypt. Hundreds of thousands, maybe tens of hundreds of thousands of Egyptians died because Pharaoh and the people, they refused to worship the creator and they refused to realize that the things they were doing were in opposition to God. So they changed what they did, changed what they thought things would be different. And this is a challenge for us uh, today. So you and I uh, and all of the people, we choose hedonism over the holy. And hedonism um, it is a word today we associate most with physical, sexual pleasure. But really it just means anything that brings us pleasure. I'm going to give myself whatever it is I want. Um, physically, visually, sexually, whatever it is. I'm going to give myself anything that my body desires. 
And, and so, so many times we choose that, what we want, over the holy things that God might want for us. So I want to do what I want to do without God interfering. Now, this is exactly what Adam and Eve did, right? They wanted to decide what was good uh, and right for them. Um, so uh, uh, let me just say this. Julie, go to the next one. People don't go to hell because they sin. They go to hell because they don't surrender. And, and that's a big part of what John is expressing in, in Revelation. We all sin and fall short of God's standards and expectations. I said in the communion talk that Jesus died to pay for all of our sin. But that doesn't mean that everybody or all of us are going to heaven. Because not everybody surrenders to King Jesus. Why? Because just like, just like Babylon, just like the kingdoms of the beast, just like the kingdom of Egypt... We refuse to recognize God as God and, and so do the things he says, even if we disagree with them. And we refuse to stop doing the things that we're doing that we know God doesn't want us to do. And, and those are the two big ones. And, and, and the point, the, the, the point is that we struggle with the same issue of repentance that John is saying that the people in the end it's not that their sins weren't forgiven. It was that they didn't surrender. They didn't recognize Jesus as God's king. And they didn't stop doing the things that were in opposition to him. And that's what separates the people who are at the sea of glass from the people who are going through the bowls and the punishments and the plagues that God is sending in his justice. And so recognizing who God is and what we've done is how we begin to follow Jesus as a king. Now, um, the last section in, in chapter 16, we're going to be done. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple. Now, it poured it out into the air. He poured it out on people. He poured it out on the waters, the planet. And now he's pouring it out into the air. So we've kind of taken care of everything, right? Uh, People, planet, uh, and what we breathe. And a loud voice came out of the temple, the sanctuary from the throne, saying, it is done. Now we don't look at, like, there's a lot of stuff in Revelation we haven't gotten to yet. And people are like, ooh, I'm waiting for that. But here, John says it's over. It's it's done. It makes me think of when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished. And we go, wait a minute, what was finished? Because there's still more. Like you still have to rise from the dead. There's still more things that need to, to happen, but it's done. And so God is saying, look, look, it's, it's done. Evil is defeated. And so there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, just like at the seventh seal, just like at the seventh trumpet, now at the seventh bowl, it's just like at Mount Sinai, it's just uh, uh, what Ezekiel sees at the Kibar Canal, um, it's what happened at the temple. This is God's presence physically interacting with the world. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, Babylon, the great city, and the cities of all the nations fell. God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds, fell from heaven on people and they still cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so 
severe. Now this is John's final depiction of God and the Lamb's victory over evil. According to what John has said, this is it. It's, it's over. It's done. Just as God defeated Egypt, giving them plenty of opportunity to repent, God will eventually defeat all evil, giving every person possible the opportunity to repent, but knowing that many are going to refuse to surrender to anybody except themselves. So John wants us to know that the only way to salvation is to surrender to King Jesus. And that only happens when we let Jesus determine what's right and wrong and we choose to follow him regardless of our own desires. Jesus has to be the king. We got to recognize him at the king and then we got to recognize he's the king enough that it affects the things we do. What we think and what we do. Remember that mark? <laughs> what we think, what we do. It should affect both of those. Let's pray. God, thanks for um, loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the story in, in Revelation. And I pray that it gives us hope uh, for the future to see that you have not left us alone, that you give us every opportunity to repent, to turn, to make Jesus the Lord and the King of our lives. And so I pray, God, that we would do that, that our, that our faith in Jesus as the King would not just affect the things that we think, recognizing you as King, but that it would permeate into our actions and our actions would change as well. That we wouldn't just expect your salvation without our surrender. We recognize that those things are tied together. And so help us, God, to surrender to you in everything. And then you lead our way. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, again, thanks for being here. Now, um, real quick, have you been able to think about um, getting together with Lee and Tina? If you think you might come to that tonight uh, out at the Hunters, just raise your hand really quick for me if you think you might come to that. I just want to know. Okay. All right, so um, that's going to happen. If you want more directions, uh, ask me. I'll give them to you again, but it's real easy um, to find from 6 to 7.30 tonight. We'll have hot dogs. We'll have drinks. Uh, we'll have some pop and water, and uh, we'll have chips as well. Uh, so just come out and enjoy some time and uh, hang out with us and them. All right, thanks. See you next time.